On behalf of Hospice of the Piedmont, welcome back to the E-Series, an educational podcast aimed at engaging our community, exploring relevant topics, and educating about ways to connect with our organization. Funding for the E-Series is provided by the Dr. John A. Lusk Fund for Hospice and Palliative Care Education. My name is Ryan Biagini, and I am your host. Today, we conclude our discussion exploring our community, navigating health disparities at end of life, between CEO of Hospice of the Piedmont, Trent Cockrum, and Dr. Homa Mugsy, Hospice of the Piedmont's Vice President of Medical Affairs and Chief Medical Officer. When we last left the conversation, Dr. Mugsy was addressing the importance of taking the time to listen to and learn from patients to better know where they are, what disparities they may be experiencing, and what needs to be done in order to offer them the best support and care possible. Let's jump back in. What's so interesting, and I think this has been a sort of a common thread that I've learned having had the privilege of meeting some really wonderful people through all of these discussions that I've been privileged to have over the last several months, is that we talk a lot about individuals and populations that are perhaps disparate, um, that struggle with access and equality and equity. But But what I think I've heard through all of these conversations, and this one included, is that we're we're really experiencing life the same. It's just the lens through which we experience it is maybe a different color, is perhaps wider or more narrow than others. But I I think what we're talking about are sort of, you know, common human experiences. Right. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, You know, I I think we all have a slightly different lens, and yet we all try to apply sort of a a cookbook medicine approach to everybody that we meet. Like the the checkbox manifesto, right? Exactly. Exactly. And and that. It, it doesn't always work. And that creates frustration uh, on patients and families' parts, also on staff, you know, hospice staff's part, right? Because it's, it's difficult when you have the tools and the resources to um, make somebody's pain better, but a patient or a family refuses that, right? But you need to understand how they're looking at the illness, how they're looking at the pain. What, is, what lens are they looking through? You, you can't look through your own lens. The whole point in, in, in providing good hospice end-of-life care is to switch the focus, listen and look through their lens and then tailor a treatment plan to that person, to that individual. Because if you don't, and I think this is where, you know, where health disparity becomes more magnified is if we don't take the time to understand what lens they're looking at the world from and, and we impose our own view of how something ought to be managed, that's when you that's when you have a, a harder end of life experience. It's that notion that, you know, my neighbor's not my neighbor's life is not my life. It is my neighbor's life, right? And, and, and I like my neighbors just fine in case they're listening to this. I, I like them a lot, um, but, but their life is different than mine. 
um, and I can't apply the same considerations to their, you know, to, to their existence as I would my own because they're different. And in truth, I mean, you know, uh, you say your neighbor, but it could be your brother. You may yeah. have grown up in the same circumstance and yet the way you choose to see the world or the, the lens that you see the world through is very different. So the approach to treatment to you would be very different. And, and again, those subtleties are only identified through conversation and, and listening, right? Yeah. You have to, that's the premise of it. And, and I think the things that you're talking about now that we've just spent a little bit of time talking about are really sort of the foundations of health equity. Again, it's, it's sort of making sure that everybody has the tool that is most appropriate for them, not the tool that we believe is best for them. Now we have many tools, right? Um, but, but not all of them are appropriate for everybody. And some of them, some patients and families will use them very differently than others, or some will not use them at all, or even to their fullest extent, right? Correct. But, but that's not a failure on our part. That's actually our sort of taking inventory and taking time to explore what they need. A lot of times, you know, we, we, we say this a lot that hospice care with our organization really is about life on your terms. I mean, and that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about living life on your terms. Exactly. Right. Spending time to understand that. Um, so, you know, you've just been with us for just about six months. Um, and you've been sort of with us as we began these conversations over the last several months. Are you beginning to see that we are, that these are having an impact on how we go about engaging with patients and families? Has it improved our ability to engage with patients and families of every group, right? Regardless of, of their, um, their, any of any disparity or their access to health services. I mean, have you, have you seen that? Have you seen us begin to adopt some of these things? Yeah, I do think I, I do see changes um, certainly in, in our organization and really in, in society as a whole, because it's so at the forefront of, of, of everything, right. Um, the past year having COVID barrel through all of our communities um, has really put such a spotlight on end-of-life care and, you know, the, the difficulties of being able to access your, your loved ones. Um, and I, I don't mean to skirt your, your, skirt your question because truly it's, it's I think it, it is a disparity of, of sorts when, when you're unable to meet your, uh, to see your loved ones as they're dying and whatnot. And right. so, I think it's it's very similar in the hospice community as it is in the palliative care community. What we're seeing, um, how we can we can best address these things. So we're listening more. There are more people working on creating better tools to meet the needs of people who who are at a lack. Um, yeah, what what I hear you saying, I think, is that that our healthcare system has found opportunity to right. address these issues because we've now seen 
them highlighted in ways that perhaps we've never really paid attention to them before. And, and again, I think, I, I, I don't think I can underscore this enough that, that really what we've talked about are really sort of common human experiences that aren't about color or socioeconomic group or um, urban versus rural. They all have different experiences because their lenses are all different. And so it's incumbent upon us thinking about the, the, the checklist manifesto is to sort of think about, let us not apply the same sort of programmatic approach to every single person. Let that live in the background. Let it not be at the foreground of everything that we do. Is right. that, I think I, that's what I heard you say. That's absolutely right. You know, I think um, COVID has, has required, there's put, has put an urgency on how we, we innovate and we change directions on how we provide care. Um, and so it's, it's the same sort of thing that I see trickling down to all other organizations, including our hospice organization. Um, there is that acute, the acuity of, of what we've all experienced is trickling down so that we're seeing what the chronic um, areas uh, of disparity need to be addressed as well. And so you know, so I think we're seeing that in our inpatient units, we're seeing that in our home patients in the community, that um, we don't have to have an acute trigger to address the needs as they, as they show up. So mm -hmm. I think everybody's a lot more aware of, of those types of issues now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I think everybody's, going back to where we started, everybody has had a survival instinct. Right. I think everybody has had a desire to help and everybody has been grateful for the information. And I'll sort of add to that and the service that they've been able to receive. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about that I think would be worthwhile for us to talk about, particularly among, um, uh, urban or rural underserved or even disparate populations is, you know, we've, we've, I've shared already some of my own experiences in the, uh, in recent episodes with sort of beginning to understand the influencers in people's lives. Um, and for many of us um, who, who live very perhaps differently or again, to use a term to view the world through a very different lens. Um, an influencer for me is my physician, but that may not be the same case for other populations of people or other individuals. It may be um, influencers that are external to the professional world or people who are directly involved in this case in their healthcare, right? Correct. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I, I think, um, again, the, the palliative hospice approach to, to patient care lends itself very well to, um, to understanding who those influencers are, right? So, so if you meet someone for the first time and you're spending that time listening and hearing, um, then whatever area that needs to be addressed is identified, whether it's biological, psychological, or, or social, biopsychosocial, wherever it might be, um, 
you can tune into that as the patient is talking to you and telling you about their story and how they, you know, the lens they're looking through it, how, how they view things you pick up on, well, this person's faith is really important to them. Mm -hmm. This person's experience with their spouse who died with morphine is really important to them. This person's experience of losing a child 20 years ago, the trauma of it is really important to them, right? So, so there are very different situations that will come in and influence a person's lens, right? And so our goal is not to change their lens, but to give, connect them with the resources to help them work through any, any barriers to good care. Um, and oftentimes that, you know, once you identify what, what a barrier, what barrier needs to be addressed and you know who the influencers are, then you can pull them in, right? So if you have somebody whose faith is super important to them, um, they, they may have a minister who can connect with them much better than, than a physician, or we can pull our chaplain in there, um, you know, and on and on it goes. So, so you don't have to, just because we take the time to listen and get to know somebody doesn't mean you have to be the one to provide the patient with the tools. Your job is to connect them with the resources, give them the tools to help move them forward. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. You say that it sort of reminded me of a conversation that I had with a dear friend of mine uh, just in the last few weeks. Um, and her uh, mother was very ill. Um, and we were having a hospice conversation, right? Her daughter was asking me about hospice services for her mom. And her mother is very religious. And, and her mother had just come out of the hospital um, from a pretty protracted um, hospitalization. And uh, but her mother is devoutly Catholic and made the decision that she did not want to go back to the hospital. That was her decision. But before she could make that decision fully, she had to talk to the priest. Absolutely. And the, and the rationale I, it was so interesting to me because the rationale behind that was her mother is well into her 80s. Um, the rationale behind that was because her mother needed to make sure that her making that decision not to go back to the hospital was not the same as suicide. Right. And, and so, and so her mother sort of knew what she wanted, but she was striking this really delicate balance between my faith and my faith traditions and beliefs and what I think I really want for my health care, because I don't want to go through all of that again. I think that that's a real world example, I think, of exactly what you just described. Yeah, and that's that's so incredibly common um, and, and really powerful. It powerfully illustrates, you know, just that point. Um, and, and in truth, a lot of times people want and need permission to move forward with the decisions that they, that are, are really theirs. Um, they, they've made the decision, but in order to get from point A to point B, they have to have someone's support, validation, uh, permission in order to do that. And that's where the influencers become so incredibly important. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really, that was a really fascinating, there are two of those in the most recent few months that I've had that 
were just really sort of um, influential to me um, to realize that, um, you know, there are many factors at play in someone's life that really shape the decisions that they make. And I, and I know that sort of academically and in my heart, I know that, right. But to actually hear that play out is really, you know, pretty, pretty powerful, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so one of the things, Dr. Muggsy, that I think about is, you know, we've talked about influencers, we've talked about sort of this survival instinct and, and the gratefulness we all have for help. And we've talked about sort of how all of this is sort of, you know, uh, emblematic of the human condition, right? Um, so we all experience this regardless of, you know, w- w- what our zip code is or, you know, um, what our, what our um, ethnicities are. Um, but, and, and then we've talked about how we influence, excuse me, how we interface with them um, with, as a care team, right? Um, and, then, and then it sounds like what we're also talking about, though, again, is giving people the right set of tools. I know we've said that a lot, but I think we can't really um, not say it enough, is giving them the right set of tools that they have to be able to navigate this. I think it's fair to say, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, that people, and you alluded to this when we first got started talking, um, when people get, you know, the first sense, maybe, that they have uh, a life-limiting illness, or maybe they've known it for a long time and now their disease has progressed to a different phase. Um, you know, sort of regardless of where they are in that trajectory, there is always an element of sort of life review and how did I find myself here, right? So there's still people, I suspect it's fair to say that people go through the many different stages that we've talked about multiple times, anger, denial, bargaining, all of those things. They, they go through that, I suspect, multiple times during the cycle of their disease process. Is that fair? Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, day to day, minute to minute, it can, it can change. And, and that can be very difficult for um, patients themselves to navigate as well as their families and loved ones. Um, and that's when the tools become so important that whatever tools that we can continue to put in their tool belt, they can pull those out. Um, and whether that's connecting them with inner inside resources, outside resources, um, having someone just to call, right? Having having a, a nurse team member to reach out to when all of a sudden someone who's been fine, fine, fine is crying unstoppably, right? Uh, it's it it puts a stress on the whole family system. You know what you just described, um, having someone to talk to. Um, when I think about the spiritual support and the psychosocial support, you know, there really isn't always a pill for that. Right. And, and, and sometimes words are not what's needed, but listening and hearing actually, and understanding actually is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's where, you know, the, the team approach um, that hospice takes to, to each individual patient that comes onto service becomes really important, right? We don't just send 
three different types of social workers, five different nurses, you know, three other chaplains. We try to have the same unit of people who can really get to know the patient and then, you know, meet them where they're at and then, and then work with them to build those tools and, and to you know, be that GPS system for them, as, as you mentioned earlier, right? Uh, I think it's, it's, it's a unique um, program that exists. Um, and unfortunately, still a lot of people don't even know about, right? And so when, when we are able to be involved, you know, there's so many research studies that show it helps improve patient symptom management and improves caregiver stress. Um, but it's that team approach, I think, that, that gets us that level of trust and comfort for, for the patient and family. Sure. And you know, when we talk about access, many times there are, um, people have perceived barriers to healthcare services. It costs too much. It, um, it's completely out of their, um, uh, out of their reach. And, and in reality, as a community supported nonprofit hospice organization, Hospice of the Piedmont and our affiliate organization, Hospice of Randolph really exist to provide those services regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of financial circumstance. You know, it really is sort of, we, we have an investment to, we, we have a distinct investment in, in taking the time to understand the lens through which you see the world. Um, because that's the only way that we can truly be of tremendous service to the communities that have supported us for the last 41 years. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, Dr. Muggsy, as we sort of wrap this conversation up, um, I uh, I want to ask you, as I've asked every guest, um, you know, if we've we've talked about a lot of things today in a brief period of time, but is there one or two things that we didn't talk about that you're like, you know, I really want to make sure that I get this across. And what might that be? Or maybe it's a story that you think of that sort of really shaped your practice or your experience, any of that. Yeah. You know, I, I think a couple points that I think uh, I, I would really want to empower people with, you know, is, is one knowing we're, we're all going to have some point in our lives where we have a loved one who will go through an end of life sort of experience. And, and the best way you can help them really is to be open, uh, to listen, um, you know, to provide that support, um, be curious, right? Don't, don't assume, you know, anything you may have known somebody for 50 years, but still listen, ask them the question, be curious, stay open, um, and, and don't have an agenda and you'll be able to, to navigate through any, any situation. Uh, you know, we're all going to reach this point at some point, all of us will die, but no two people will have the same experience. And so, you know, we want to meet everybody where they're at. And yeah. so in order to do that, um, those are the, the second suggestions, the recommendations I would have. Those are powerful. I appreciate that. Um, I thank you very much for the opportunity to have had this really wonderful conversation with you. Um, I'm going to turn it back over to Ryan. Thank you so much. And let me echo that. Thank you both for allowing us to sit in on this conversation. 
Uh, we appreciate you, Dr. Muggsy, for taking the time to share with us your background and how it has shaped not only why you became a palliative care physician, but also your approach to providing that care. Um, <clears throat> thank you for unpacking your knowledge and your many years of cross-cultural experience um, with underserved urban communities and showing us how that population is, is similar in many ways to the populations and families we serve at end of life. Um, there is a, there sounded like there is a universality, a universality to valuing knowledge and appreciating an, an empathetic listening ear when experiencing a medical crisis or grief at any stage of life really. Um, so I'm grateful that it sounds like you and your team at Hospice of the Piedmont uh, really make those things a priority as you build trust and meet a patient and family where they are, uh, bearing in mind all the disparities they may or may not experience and, and offering them the care they need on the terms they choose at end of life. So we just appreciate uh, you and you taking the time to unpack all of this and so much more for us. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for our discussion, exploring our community, navigating health disparities at end of life. This concludes this series of discussions, but we hope you will stay connected with us for our next E-Series podcast, Conversations in Care, where we will be joined by different members of the Hospice of the Piedmont team and discuss how hospice staff help bridge the unknowns that come with a difficult diagnosis and the common concerns when seeking hospice services. In addition, please keep an eye out for future installments of the E-Series by visiting the event section of hospiceofthepiedmont.org or following us on Facebook or LinkedIn. Until then, I'm Ryan Biagini, and this has been the E-Series.